millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I mean, most people think that I'm fearless because they hear that, you know, I've been diving inside icebergs, under the Sahara Desert, inside volcanoes, or even, you know, kilometers back inside an underwater cave. And they go... Wow, you must be fearless. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, in fact, I accept and embrace fear. I want to dive with people that are also afraid because it means that we care about the risks that we're about to take. Hey, how are you? Great. Nice to see you, Peter. Yeah, nice to see you too. I'm really, really excited for this one because having read your book and like delved deep into some of the work that you've been doing, it's an amazing journey, right? So um, I guess before we dive properly into the nuts and bolts, let's start with a little introduction as to who you are and what you, what you do. Sure thing. My name is Jill Heinerth, and I am a full-time underwater explorer with a specialty of diving into underwater caves. You've dove into some of like the the most amazing places as we'll kind of go on and explore during the podcast. But I guess maybe a good place to start is in the beginning, right? So um, kind of tell me a little bit more about what you were like when you were growing up. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was a totally adventurous kid, full of curiosity, loved to be in the outdoors and especially in the water. And I wanted to be a diver, but you know, my family said, oh, gosh, honey, like, I don't think people dive in Canada. It's too cold. <laughs> so I didn't actually start my diving career till I was in university. And um, in at university, I was studying fine arts. So my, my background is really as an artist, as a graphic designer that uh, loves to be creative and nowadays creative underwater. Oh, amazing. And like before you actually properly dove into um, the uh, kind of exploration and some of the adventures that you've been on. You kind of, you did pursue a career in in the creative arts. So tell me a little bit more about what it was like the university times and post-university and up, up until the age of 27, which was when your kind of crossroads moment hit. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I, when I got out of university, I, I uh, started a small graphic design company and I, I loved what I was doing, but I was also scuba diving as a hobby and I found myself, you know, sitting in that studio at a drafting table with the walls kind of closing in around me going, you know, I love what I'm doing. I love the creative aspects, but I really want to be underwater. And I'm always trying to find the fastest way out of the office to uh, to go diving. So one day I literally like packed it in and decided to sell everything and move to the Cayman Islands to be in a place where I could be diving every day. And I didn't really have much of a plan other than uh, if I dove more often, then I, you know, would be building skills to 
hopefully lead towards a full-time career in the water. And how did that kind of career evolve? Like, let's talk through maybe some of the the experiences you had in in like Mexico before we kind of go into like B-15. Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine that like when I decided to uh, to pursue this direction, this was pre-internet, you know, really. So I, I would write letters to magazines and send photographs and try to convince them to publish an article, that kind of thing. And and uh, slowly, I also was getting involved in um, exploration. I went to Florida to get properly trained as a, a cave diver, even though I'd already been dabbling in cave diving uh, where, where I was living in the Caymans. And I was just slowly, you know, one step at a time, both building competency underwater with a camera, increasing my cave diving skills, and then, you know, starting on my own explorations as well. And it was about 1995 when I really feel like that was the beginning of my exploration career, when I went to Mexico with the U.S. deep caving team on a pretty extraordinary expedition. Let's maybe walk over some of that expedition. Yeah, so that expedition was in a place called Wautla in the uh, in the Sierra Mazateca Mountains, and we were uh, exploring an area that's been explored by a lot of cavers over the years. But people had been working in the top of these mountains and finding a way inside the mountain, following the path of water through entering through a sinkhole, you know, rappelling down rope, crawling on their hands and knees, and they were literally miles inside the planet. So in '95, we thought thought, what if we went to the bottom of the mountain and found where the water comes out of the mountain and started there and tried to find our way up to where the previous divers and explorers had left off? You know, could we find that through path and potentially what we knew would be the deepest cave in the Western Hemisphere, but maybe even the deepest cave in the world? What was it like kind of going into such depths? Uh, you know, it was pretty crazy. Being my first real expedition, I went along literally as someone who had a goal to help out. I was going to babysit base camp, you know, learn from the team, you know, improve my surveying skills, learn a bit more about, you know, rope technique for dry caving. Um, and so when I went there, I didn't expect to be, you know, sort of a full contributing member of the underwater exploration team. But that was kind of the way it worked out. I got to do some of the biggest dives on the uh, on the project and bigger than anything I'd done before. And when I look back on that, I'm a little bit horrified with what I didn't know at the time. And so I think of myself as a bit lucky in those early days, those early years. I have a lot more appreciation for the magnitude of those dives <laughs> we did back then. You mentioned about luck, but like in respect to the relationships that you had already built about that time, kind of talk me through some of the other members of the team that you were kind of diving with and their relationship, their relationship to you. Sure, the uh, the team was led by Dr. Bill Stone, and I had read about him for you know a decade and and all of his work as a cave explorer, as a very capable aerospace engineer, and I you know was pretty excited about. It. <laughs> about going on this project led by him pretty excited to have him as a as a mentor 
And I was traveling with uh, Paul Heinerth, who I ended up marrying <laughs> about a year after the expedition. And we were we were diving partners on that on that project. He was also my my cave diving instructor, so uh, it was kind of an interesting <laughs> interesting uh, journey through life. And it was a small team. There were just uh, seven of us uh, down there in this uh, canyon at the bottom of the mountains, in a small base camp. And and a really interesting, diverse group with a lot of different backgrounds and skills and a lot of open-mindedness, which I think is really important to, to success in these kind of projects. Yeah, exactly. And I guess like the relationships as well, you know, you mentioned you, you went on to marry Paul after kind of this experience. Yeah. But kind of there was another experience within the book towards your relationship with Paul that kind of in the early parts of the book, when you talk about the deepest ability to potentially lose somebody kind of led to that real, that real connection. Can you kind of talk over that a little bit more detail? Yeah. I mean, when you go on an expedition, that's really hard. I mean, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of discomfort and everything else. You, you develop a bond with teammates, like, like no other bond, like just by that shared adversity, I think. And, uh, and I like to say that you either, you know, come away and, uh, hating someone or loving them. <laughs> so, so I fell in love with Paul and, and, and there were also some really scary moments that maybe cemented that. Like there was one dive where I was literally squatting by the edge of the water and the current in, in the cave had kind of reversed and, and all of a sudden the cave was filling up with this muddy water. And I knew he was deep inside there. In fact, we were having these mudslides outside the cave in the canyon and it was just completely changing the conditions. And it was, it was terrifying. And I, he'd been gone a long time and I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, like I determined that he was way, way overdue. And I, made kind of a dangerous uh, escape from the cave back to base camp. Now these mudslides had caused like the water to rise up into a terrible, you know, frothy torrent. And, and, uh, and I got back to base camp and basically called a, an alert saying, Hey, Hey, he's really, really overdue. And one of my experienced um, colleagues in base camp said, how much overdue? And I can't remember at that point whether it was one hour or three hours, but it was a a matter of hours. And he looked at me and he said, oh, oh, honey, I had to wait like weeks for (laughs) for people before. I've waited days for people in the cave before. You know, just relax a little bit. Everything's going to be okay." But for me, as this newbie to expedition life, it was it was quite, you know, alarming. And Paul did eventually surface, surface, but, uh, <laughs> but I thought he was gone. You know, there was a time I thought he was dead. And, and, uh, and that's when I sort of thought, wow, I really care about this person. And I guess like, it makes me think about how the bonds were formed in, in periods of real hardship and real challenge. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of parallels can be drawn as well towards what took place in Thailand with that kind of kids football team that got stuck. Oh, but yeah. like, can you kind of walk through some of the challenges that people that aren't divers that may be unaware of and kind of what the realities they feel? 
Sure. I mean, caves are underwater environments, but they're underwater environments with a roof over your head. So then um, that's really the biggest risk. Like you have to remember that, you know, the best people to save you are already in the cave. <laughs> Basically, there's no mission control to call for help if you run into problems. So you've got to have the right gear. You've got to right, have the right training. You've got to have the right dive partner that's, you know, willing to... Um, to execute a buddy rescue if needed. And you have to be able and willing to execute a buddy rescue or a self-rescue, um, basically. I mean, for those that read about the, the Thai, Thai cave rescue, that was a pretty remarkable situation when the members of the uh, wild boar soccer team went into a cave in Thailand. And when the water started to rise from a storm that moved in, they ran further into the cave and became trapped by that rising water. And it was friends of mine, colleagues from all over the world, that went to Thailand to execute a rescue. And um, you have to imagine they had no visibility, high currents. Um, even one errant fin kick can cause what's left of the visibility to be completely wiped out. You've got to run a guideline that you can run through your hands to give you a tactile reference to weave your way through the rocky passages that are sometimes so small it's like squeezing underneath your bed. And they were going like kilometers into the cave before they finally found the kids trapped in an airspace. And then they had to think about, well, how do we get them out over a multi-hour escape from the cave? So caves are really dangerous environments, and um, it requires a lot of training, experience, um, the right equipment and the right mindset to, uh, to tackle these kind of environments. So kind of tell me a little bit more about the training and experience, because kind of your journey that ends up where you are like one of the first group, the first group to kind of dive in the caves in the Antarctic, like diving an iceberg. It's just absolutely insane. You know, yeah. there is a long old pathway to get to that point before you kind of pitch the idea to National Geographic, but maybe mm -hmm. walk through mm -hmm. some of the key steps that you took. Sure. I mean, most people that learn how to scuba dive, they'll learn in a single tank and they breathe off uh, a regulator valve that um, is supplying air as they need it. And as they exhale, they make bubbles into the environment and all that gas is lost into the water column. When you want to cave dive, um, we consider that the realm of what we call technical diving, which means you need more redundancy. Obviously, like you've got to have a lot more gas with you. You've got to have backup equipment. You've got to have a lot more training to deal with longer time durations underwater. And so there's a series of classes, like, like literally many classes to move from recreation recreational diving to technical diving like you go through some advanced training and rescue training and and training with what we call nitrox so different gas mixtures decompression training so that you learn um, how to deal with the effects of longer dives that keep you underwater for prolonged periods and so you know you might have gone through a dozen classes you know days to weeks at a at a time in order to gain proficiency as a cave diver and then beyond those classes you need a lot of time in different environments you need to have some good scares to um, develop your your skills so that you're able to deal with anything that comes your way but also deal with it in a calm way because every breath that you take in the moment of a crisis leads you closer to death, right? Leads you closer to running out of gas. So it's incredibly important that you stay calm and that you've got, uh, you know, the right people with you as well. I guess like, because I read your book recently, I read it again and um, before we had this call, and one of the things that I kept on 
coming back to was the your ability to kind of deal with fear and lean into mm-hmm. fear. And mm-hmm. so kind of let, let's walk over that in a little bit more detail. Sure. I mean, most people think that I'm fearless because they hear that, you know, I've been diving inside icebergs, under the Sahara Desert, inside volcanoes, or even, you know, kilometers back inside an underwater cave. And they go, wow, you must be fearless. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, In fact, I accept and embrace fear. I want to dive with people that are also afraid because it means that we care about the risks that we're about to take. But what we do need to do is before we go underwater, think of all the things that could possibly kill us today, all the things that could go wrong and ensure that we have the right gear, that we've practiced the protocols and are willing to stick to the safety procedures when something like that happens. And then underwater, when that inevitable crisis occurs, because we always expect crisis, then something scares me. I recognize that my breathing rate is starting to go up, my heart rate's starting to go up, and and then I call them the chattering monkeys in my brain. They start to all like explode in my mind and a million thoughts are occurring all at once. It's in that moment that I have to not just deal with the problem at hand, which might be some hose just exploded and I'm losing a ton of gas, right? But I have to take a deep breath into like the bottom of my hips and all the way up into my neck. And in the process of taking that very deep breath and holding it for just a moment, I tell my mind that my emotions are useless to me right now and I need to set them aside and focus on just pragmatic steps to move forward one step at a time. And it's that breathing discipline that becomes very, very important to me underwater. And it's the same strategy that I use for dealing with things that scare me out of the water as well. Uh, because fear is fear is valid. You know, whether you're a student putting an essay on a teacher's desk or, uh, you know, a business person trying to give a pitch to a, a committee of, of your peers. I mean, fear is natural. Like we experience it all the time and, and we shouldn't run from it. We should embrace it and recognize that that is actually the key to exploration and discovery. Because when we step into that fear and into that darkness, that's when we can accomplish something that's new for ourselves or maybe even new for humanity. Yeah, definitely. That like ability to really understand and embrace fear is something that I'm 100% with you. I think that the mm-hmm. more that we can kind of challenge our own mindsets, the the, the yeah. better we become as individuals. And I'm interested to understand, bearing in mind, like the, the controlling of the breath under, underwater and how does it relate to your experiences within like mindfulness and potentially meditation? And Yeah. Yeah, I think like breathing is a core focus, not just in my underwater work, but in in my life, I suppose, you know, whether I'm trying to fall asleep, whether I'm trying to sort of de-stress a situation, breathing is the answer um, for me. And I think what it does is just allows that focus, um, allows the separation from emotions, gives me a moment of of quietness in that that fullness of that breath that's when i can really talk to my my mind and and kind of direct it in the way that i that i feel is going to be most useful for for the moment at hand i suppose yeah i guess like the ability to kind of control your mind you mentioned about darkness before 
you must have, like, when you go through this, you must have experiences with, like, self-doubt and comparison paralysis. And mm-hmm. how do you deal with that in the depths of darkness? How do you deal with that in such confined spaces um, yeah. to, you know, ultimately calm yourself in, in kind of turbulent seas? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I was scared of the dark, you know, just going down the basement stairs uh, to get to the little string that I would pull to turn on the light bulb terrified me as a kid. I thought something was going to jump out from under the stairs, right? And now here I am working in a completely dark environment for most of my work. And somehow I've managed to transform that that fear of the darkness into great comfort underwater. And I think some of it is the sensory deprivation. Like when I descend beneath the surface, I, I, I'm able to shut off audio, right? Like like we're not talking to each other underwater. All I'm hearing is the sound of my equipment, the sound of the environment. And when I descend, it feels like I'm actually able to turn off all the stresses that are above the water just because of that quiet. Like there's no background noise other than underwater. And that puts me into an incredible place of focus. The same thing happens when I'm dealing with a silt out, like when I cannot see underwater and I've I've got to like grab onto the guideline that leads all the way out of the cave, the guideline that I've laid. And I use that as a tactile reference to come out of the cave. And a lot of people say, wow, that sounds terrifying, literally groping physically through the cave underwater when you can't see. But I find that the sensory deprivation actually lends to, to a focus. So I'm not hearing the top side anymore. Now I can't see. And suddenly the tactile reference is stronger. And I actually feel other senses kind of pick up. Like I feel my my proximity awareness is improved. Like even though I can't see, somehow I'm dodging rocks. Somehow I have a visual memory of where I am in the cave. And so I think when we could turn off like some of our senses, other ones are peaked and, and that helps. It helps deal with the fear. It helps deal with the stress. Yeah, and I guess like you know, when I when I was reading your story, there's a load of different emotions that you kind of have to deal with. Like one of the things that was definitely resonated with me the most within the journey was there was a very clear parallel between the love and connection you have to your your peers, and also mm-hmm. there's real parallels between what seemed like a an addiction to a sport to equally the the crazy numbers of people that you've lost in that experience Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I I, you know I have a horrible list of over a hundred friends and colleagues that have lost their lives in cave diving technical diving rebreather diving accidents and um and that's really sobering I mean my own husband who's a military veteran says he's known you know more death and been to more funerals of of my colleagues than he knew from his experiences in the military. And, and so some would say, well, well, why do you do this? Why do you do this dangerous job? Like, how do you separate yourself from, from that risk? And I, I don't ever want to be so egotistical to say, well, that'll never happen to me. But I have to kind of analyze those accidents and incidents that occur and, and try to ensure that, that, I stay true to my uh, dedication to safety protocols. Like, think bad things have happened to good friends, and so how can I prevent that myself? And and I suppose it's a real analytical approach that I have to take. But I don't feel like I'm an adrenaline 
junky, like, like, yes, I love being underwater. I love the joy of exploration. You know, if I wasn't a cave diver, I would probably find some other aspect of exploration outdoors that, that, that I would be fully engaged in. But just because I do things that are risky doesn't mean I do them in a way that's unsafe. So I, I try to mitigate as many of those risks as possible, but, but I feel a real devotion to the sense of exploration that is like, like we don't necessarily have maps for things that haven't been done before. We don't have manuals, we don't have safety protocols. And so we have to be prepared to, to create those so that, that we can do it as safely as possible and create those so that other people can follow as safely as possible. And it's a, it's a dedication and it's a careful, a careful dance throughout life. But I think I'm getting better at it as I'm, as I'm aging. I think I, I have more wisdom. I know when to turn around. I know when things are not worth it. And, and I know when to pull a partner back that seems like they're on a, a bad trajectory, I suppose. So there's there's few things now that that I feel like I have to do. Like I'm much better at saying, mm, nah, not today, or no, I don't think I want to be involved in that project. Where when I was younger, I was hungrier for for a resume list of experiences, I suppose. Yeah, I guess it's also that like Ray Dallow thing, the the pain plus reflection equals progress. Uh, you know, like we all have to yes. deal with our various forms of pain, but it's it's mm-hmm. what we do within pain, what we do within challenge that can kind of you know that that's that's the real nuts and bolts. That's really where we can kind of progress from. And yeah. I remember you, yeah. you wrote something in. There's a quote that really stuck with me in in the book that says, "Some say you have to reach rock bottom before you can see clearly," and I think some of the challenges that you've been through. I think it's a good time to kind of move on to how you got involved with the dive up in Antarctic and kind mm-hmm. of what led yeah. to that crazy journey because yeah it's <laughs> even the journey that that um got you there was was pretty yeah. turbulent as well like those rough seas so I'd really yeah. love to kind of explore mm-hmm. that with you and um learn a little bit more Yeah so back over 20 years ago now um I was the first person to cave dive inside an iceberg. And it wasn't just any iceberg. It was the largest moving object on our planet. It was um, the B-15 iceberg that calved away from the Ross ice shelf back in 2001. And it was the size of Jamaica. And my colleague, Wes Giles, and I... I love how you just uh, say that. It's just so like laissez-faire. It was the size of Jamaica. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was big. It was big. Yeah. My colleague, Wes Giles, and I wanted to go to Antarctica. We wanted to pitch a project to National Geographic, and we had been bouncing around ideas for a couple of years. And And our first thought was, well, we're just going to follow Shackleton's route from New Zealand to the Ross Sea and uh, sort of recreate his journey and, you know, tell uh, some of his stories as we were approaching the the 100th anniversary of some of his explorations. So that's where we were at first. And then as we're preparing to uh, to pitch that, this iceberg caps away from Antarctica and it's like, holy mackerel. <laughs> so so we pitched to be the first people to cave dive inside icebergs and, and Nat Geo was like, wow, there's caves inside of icebergs? And we were like, hell yeah, there's caves inside of icebergs. But the truth was, it was a, it was a hypothesis. <laughs> I mean, we didn't really know. But just from what we understood about how caves were formed in limestone, we thought, well, why wouldn't they form faster in ice when meltwater would, would enlarge cracks and crevices and create passageways that water would run through? 
And but it was a complete guess. But we got our funding and uh, went to New Zealand and made this perilous 12 day crossing across the Southern Ocean through seas as big as 20 meters. And, um, and it was actually more than a month of travels and searching before we actually found what I felt was uh, the deliverable that National Geographic would be looking for, like a real lengthy cave system inside an iceberg. But it had never been done before. So we had to make up the rules every day that we went diving. How did you go about doing it? Because obviously when, you, you know, you you're on about that journey from New Zealand. There's a lot of people that talk about, I think it's the Roaring 40 Sea. It's the, the yeah. size of the, the waves that like crash yeah. on top. And what was yeah. that actually experience like? So the Roaring 40s, the Furious 50s, and the Screaming 60s are a band um, where storms can actually encircle the planet and just run around the planet unimpeded because there's no land for it to trip over, basically. So um, the storms in the Southern Ocean are epic. And Paul, my, my husband then, was sick from the moment we left the dock. And you can only imagine what physical condition someone is like after 12 days of, of throwing up and being sick. So by the time we got to Antarctica, we were in pretty rough shape. Like the guys had lost 20 pounds. <laughs> Uh, it was unbelievable. Um, and just trying to go to the bathroom, like you'd end up getting, getting thrown all over the ship and, and getting bruised and cut and injured, you know? So by the time we got down there, we'd experienced those seas. We had, had to use the boat to push our way through pack ice. We got frozen in the pack ice. There were places when we got so much rime ice on the ship that it was starting to list and we had to beat the ice off the boat with baseball bats and sledgehammers. And so there were a lot of things that were already going wrong even before getting there. So every single day it was like, holy mackerel, like now this has happened. What are we going to do? Like, oh my gosh, the salt water's gotten to the electrical system on the helicopter and the wiring has dissolved away. We're going to have to rewire the helicopter. So we were doing things that we had never imagined just to get along day by day by day. And so when it came time to dive, it was like slow progression again. I had lots of experience ice diving, but my colleagues Paul and Wes had never been ice diving before. And despite the fact that I wanted to train them in Canada, they were both like, oh no, we don't want to do any more of these ice dives than absolutely necessary. And I'm like, holy mackerel. So we were ice diving, you know, right beside an iceberg to get started. And um, it just step by step by step, we're increasing the, the difficulty in learning about the environment. There were ridiculous currents both laterally as well as vertically, because when the ice is melting, it's freshwater ice into a saltwater sea. And the different densities mean that you get some really weird vertical currents that can suddenly just like rip you away and pull you down into the depths. So there's that. Then the ice is breaking, it's calving. So every day was a challenge where we had to sit down, talk about what had happened, think about new strategies for continuing to do what we wanted to do possibly after going you know passing the arctic circle and going on that kind of long haul journey that james cook famously made all the many many moons ago yeah. it it must have felt kind of 
almost refreshing to kind of get into those like icy icy waters for the first time to kind of because it's something that you knew right like at the you're facing turbulence yeah. above, above sea but like actually when you get into the water it was like this is the time to dive so what was it yeah. like when you first embarked into the sea at that particular point yeah for me that was like finally i was in the place where i got to put my expertise to work you know like like you're right that is the the environment that i was most comfortable in like after that un- incredibly uncomfortable journey now i got to jump into my element and you know first jumping in the water it's like jumping into a slushy it's so cold because of the salt water and freshwater mixing there it is so cold that it's actually below zero and you're actually jumping into slush <laughs> and you're pushing away bigger chunks of ice on the surface and you can't even focus because of the mixing water densities. So you can't see properly until you've descended a little bit. And then even still, that visibility is off. And uh, it's very difficult to to get a sense of what's going on. But And yet, that's where I felt most comfortable. So for me, it was exciting. That's when the work began. But I guess also the journey into the water, it wasn't all particularly calm like when when reading the book there's well I'll I'll let you kind of describe the challenges that you went through yeah when we first started diving um around a an iceberg that was drifting we anchored to the iceberg and when you anchor to the iceberg you feel like you're anchored to an island that's stationary but it's not (laughs) it's continuing to drift in the current and you don't even think about that you don't sense that you you feel yourself swimming against a current and but that's just to try and keep up with the iceberg literally so that was interesting but the other thing that would happen is the wind would shift and suddenly the pack ice would would roll in and all of a sudden what was open water you realize that now all these big ice pans are coming in and they're actually slamming up against the ship. And so that entrance to get out of the water is suddenly gone or it's suddenly in between these huge pans of tons of ice. So that was something I was like, ooh, didn't really think that would happen so quickly. (laughs) How did it make you feel when you kind of were trapped under the ice for a period of time and also how what was it like when you know you mentioned in the book about that you're having a like a hole in your glove and what, yeah. what was that like because you know having to deal with those changing circumstances must have been insane well fortunately one thing that i'm so glad that i stuck to my guns on was the technology that we were using for diving so most people that dive again on on a normal scuba uh, apparatus would be making bubbles where I'm actually diving with something called a rebreather. And that's a device that's closer to a space suit where those bubbles that you would normally exhale into the environment are recaptured within the device. And then they're scrubbed free of carbon dioxide. And then you're actually manipulating your own life support environment, adding little bits of oxygen back into your breathing mix to make up for what you've already consumed or metabolized. What that rebreather does is it keeps you a tiny bit warmer because the chemical reaction that occurs to remove the carbon dioxide creates some heat and moisture. So it gives you a little little more warmth, but it gives you time because you're conserving all of those oxygen molecules. So it's, it's less of a race against time 
as when you are breathing and making bubbles and watching your your precious resources you know go off into the water column so that technology was critical to our survival and critical to give us time to deal with emergencies like when the ice moves in overhead or when a calving causes the doorway of the cave to be closed you know and you're on the inside so when I first applied to the National Science Foundation for a permit to go engage in scientific activities down in Antarctica, they rejected our permit based on the fact that I wanted to use this new rebreather technology. But I told them there wasn't any way I was going to do these dives without that technology. And they said, okay, well, we're not going to give you a permit to go to Antarctica and you have to have a scientific permit to go there. So I ended up applying um, to New Zealand to get the permits that we needed to to go there. And that all worked out. But without those rebreathers, we wouldn't have survived the dives that that we'd done. We simply, you know, wouldn't have had the time underwater to solve those problems like a leaking glove or being trapped inside the iceberg. So we were cold and uncomfortable, but we had time. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I guess like the thing that I really took when I was like reading that chapter is not only how mind-blowing it is that you've been to places that no one else has been to um, and how that must have must have felt but equally it's your ability to kind of maintain your objective and never quit which really really resonated because at the moment, there's a lot, awful lot of people, and I'll, I'll do a comparison to people's jobs. Like, there's a lot of people that aren't particularly happy in their roles. They're almost like pr- imprisoned to conformity or imprisoned to comfort 
And Mm -hmm. when I read your story and when I was like listening to what you have to say and that decision point at at the age of 27 to kind of actually just actually want to pursue challenge and want to pursue something different and want to kind of push your limits was something I really resonated with. So it's like looking over the course of your career that you've that you've had, what would you say are the biggest highlights outside of, of B15? Mm. Wow. You know, it's interesting that you're men- mentioning change because because that's always what ignites my imagination. So I actually like it when I'm suddenly thrust into a situation I know nothing about, <laughs> where that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. They prefer the routineness of, of, of their jobs or their life or whatever, but I actually prefer things to be upset and switched up and, and changed. Um, it was very, very hard the first time to kind of jump into cold water, I suppose, like, like leave my business behind, sell everything, move to the Cayman Islands and, and fully embrace that change. But I think it takes a certain amount of trust in self to do that, like a belief in self that you're, that you are willing to do the hard work to achieve whatever you, you want to achieve. But I think if we're all really you know, honest about our lives today, we have all endured a tremendous amount of change from COVID, right? Like the lockdowns and and uncertainty in the world as a result. People discovered that they could handle an awful lot of of change and uncertainty and and found a particular resilience. And and I think it's in that discomfort that you can say to yourself, okay, I I managed okay. Like I didn't know where the next paycheck was coming from, but it all worked out and here I am today. So maybe the next time it's going to be a little bit easier. And and that's been true for me that each time I take on a new challenge, it's a bit easier, but I always have to have that, that confidence in my ability to work hard and never give up. But I guess it goes above and beyond just confidence though, because it's kind of seems only right that we kind of talk about what it must feel and what it was like in a sport and an environment that's largely male dominated and kind of how a that made you feel b what the challenges were and kind of I guess see what what would you tell you know a future version of you and another another girl or ever that's like pursuing a pathway that is largely male dominated and how did that feel Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was even more male dominated when I when I sort of got my career started. There are more and more women uh, involved in technical diving and, and the kinds of kinds of things that I do. Still, not too many doing it as a as a full time career, but there are more. But early on, I recognized that as a young person, it's really easy to slam a door in somebody's face and they'll never open that door again. Like at one point, I thought, well, maybe I can be a commercial diver, and I, I saved some money, went to a commercial diving workshop. And the instructor came right up to me and said, sorry, there's no room in commercial diving for women. If you just want to go train dolphins or something like that, there's another way to, to make that happen. And I was so dismissed and, and it was just such an authoritative like slap that, that I never opened that door again. And and today, I'm more likely to say, oh, watch me. <laughs> so there's a certain wisdom that comes with age where you recognize that those, that misogyny or, or you know, racism, sexism, any ism at all, ageism, it's not about you. It's about them, right? 
And so you just have to be willing to deflect that and just go on your merry way and, you know, find another way in, I suppose. And I would, I would tell, you know, my future self (laughs) to, you know, be patient and just do your thing, do your thing and ignore the naysayers. Like, like that's not about you. It's about their own shortages or their own experiences in life and um, work hard nothing is impossible yeah i believe nothing's impossible it's ultimately like we're limited by what we can imagine and as long as we can kind of pursue those dreams and long Mm -hmm. to be more and do more and like achieve more than you know anything's are anything's possible you dedicate quite a lot of years i would say like there's a chapter in there called purpose for 96 to 99 that you talk a little bit more about being the purpose made podcast like let's just talk a little bit about what purpose means to you well when i started cave diving and tried to find my way in a, a career that it would involve cave diving uh, most people perceived that I was just some sort of an adrenaline sports junkie, like including my own family. You know, they're like, what are you doing? You've, you've sold a great business. What are, what are you doing? You're going to be a scuba diver? Like, like that's a hobby. That's not a career. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a career. And so there were, there were those, those barriers, I suppose, like societal, social barriers, but also my own, doubts, self-doubts, imposter syndrome, whatever else. We all have it. Like that's that's natural. That's that's normal. And yet again, you, you like nothing is impossible if you if you put your mind towards it. So the sense of purpose was really important to me. I needed to find like why am I doing this? How can I make the world a better place? Like I I I can't just do this, do this risky thing and say that it's it's worth it because because why right is it just for my own self gratification and if it is then then that's not really what I want to do for the rest of my life I want to do something where I can reveal important information about like water issues or global climate change or maybe just inspire people to um, step outside the norm and do something that that scares them uh, but I had to find that 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 place where I had a unique viewpoint that I could share with the world. Because ultimately, I was still that little girl in kindergarten that used to love show and tell, <laughs> sharing a unique experience with my colleagues in class, except, you know, now I'm trying to do it on a on a more global sense, but make sure that every dive is worth it so that I can tell my husband that, you know, yes, I am taking a risk, but here's why, and uh, and that it all makes sense. It's really interesting when you, when I was reading about your story as well. If you really want to pursue things like purpose and if you really want to kind of go down that, that journey to kind of see how far we can go, there's often a lot of challenges. So kind of when you did talk briefly about your business, about a the graphic design firm that you had, when you went over to Cayman Islands, there's also that bit about how after a couple of months, just, your partners, even though there's a legal agreement there, they just stopped paying you your, your money. Yeah. And so like yeah. that ability to kind of go to kind of ground zero and just be like, look, you can either pivot back and go make money or you just right. have to continue on. And I think that that the challenge makes us, right? The challenge defines who, who we ultimately become and those that kind of press on in times of, of hardship. I think, yeah, like they're the brave ones, right? Well, it's funny, you know, at that moment in the Cayman Islands when my, my former business partners decided not to pay out the rest of the loan, I 
literally went on a dive thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, I got myself a lawyer and everything else. And I, I go on a dive and I actually flooded my underwater camera. So there I was in the Cayman Islands, like in a new country. I've now flooded, destroyed the camera that I think is the tool that I need to create my new career. And now my nest egg, the thing that I could fall back on if it doesn't work out here, is gone. And so I was sitting there just feeling sort of naked in the universe. Like I have nothing. I, I, the nest eggs don't gone. There's, I have no choice but to succeed right? Um, because if I don't, I'm just going home without money, a home or, or anything. And I would have to go back with my tail between my legs and, you know, beg my family to, to, to live with them until I could get back on my feet again. And I thought, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm staying here and I'm going to make it happen. And um, so, yeah, maybe at the worst of times, that's when you find the strength or or at least the determination to to try to make it work. Yeah, definitely. Talk, talk to me a little bit about like the, the pit in 2000, the point where you were told to never dive again. And, and why, why was that? Yeah. So I was exploring a very deep cave system that my husband and I had had discovered in Mexico. And it was a really significant, significant location. And as we were doing some pretty big dives, I experienced what's called decompression sickness or the bends. And the best way to think about it or to visualize what's going on is if you take a soda pop bottle, that's full of pressurized fluid that has like tiny bubbles inside it. And you don't see those bubbles when you look at the pop, right? But if you shook that pop bottle, you would increase the pressure in the pop bottle. And then if you took the lid off it, those bubbles would gang up and spray out all over the place. It's kind of what happens to your body when you go diving. So when you go on a very deep, very long dive, inert gas because of the pressure, gets sort of stuffed into all your tissues of your body. So you are the pop bottle. And if you just skyrocketed to the surface, swam up too fast, it would be like ripping the cap off the pop bottle. Now, sometimes, because this isn't sort of black and white, then if, you're, if your body isn't agreeing with the you know mathematical you know, model that you've created for your very slow ascent back to the surface, then the bubbles within your tissues can start to cause problems. They can start to get bigger. They can get trapped in different places in your body. They can cause pain, inflammation, or even worse, you know, swelling, paralysis, or a death. That's called decompression sickness. So I experienced a bad case of decompression illness on that project from these very, very deep dives. And we were in deep inside the jungle with nobody to get help from. I had to treat myself by going back in the water under pressure to try and resolve some of those bubbles. And it was a very, very scary time for me because I I did end up at a recompression chamber, a medical facility um, in Mexico for about a week's worth of treatments. And at the end of the week worth of treatments, the doctor told me to never dive again. And so there I was once again, feeling like, holy mackerel, what am I going to do? This is, this is who, this is the career that I've built with so much sweat equity. This is who I am. You know, what will I do if I'm not diver Jill anymore? And, uh, 
I decided not to take his advice. <laughs> Talk to me about waiting. Um, there's a there's a big chapter in there about waiting and kind of mm-hmm. the impact of waiting on your life. Talk to me about some of the examples that you highlight in the chapter because I thought that was a really powerful chapter. Yeah, I mean, I remember waiting for Paul on the water's edge when he was off on that horribly long dive and where my mind went in a matter of hours, just imagining that he was dead. I mean, waiting, being the person waiting is horrible when you're waiting for someone to come back. And so I have to remember every time I go diving that that's the effect that I have on my husband today. He's not a diver. And when I'm gone on an expedition off, you know, somewhere far away and I'm deep inside a cave, he's waiting and that's awful. And in in the cave diving sense, when somebody is waiting and the person hasn't come home, then they're probably gone. So there was an occasion when someone came up to me and said, Jill, how long do you wait? And I said, what do you mean, Julie? And she said, how long do you wait for your cave diving spouse to come home? And I thought, what's going on? And she said, my my husband went cave diving last night and he didn't come home. And I went, oh my God, you know, where was he? What's going on? And and very quickly determined that um, that his 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 car, his truck was parked beside a a site, and he'd gone cave diving the night before. So I knew that we were going to have to do a body recovery. So when we wait for someone who hasn't returned, it means they're gone. So waiting is 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 horrible. It's it's horrible for the person waiting at home. Like the easiest job is to be the diver at, at sometimes, and I have to be respectful of of the kinds of stresses that that I put my family or my or my husband through. And that's why I need that sense of purpose for for those dives, and I need them to understand the sense of purpose that I'm chasing. You know why I do this. And I guess like talking about waiting and like the recovery dives, I I cannot comprehend how that must be, especially bearing in mind, it must be quite a tight circle where everybody knows everybody. So what is that like? Yeah. uh, I mean, there's, there's a very small community of active cave divers around the world that are, you know, skilled at the top level of the sport with the right gear and everything else. So when, someone is overdue. Uh, we have like kind of a hotline that is uh, initiated amongst the the qualified people around the world. And, and that's how all the people ended up dropping everything and going to the Thai cave rescue. It was through that same sort of, you know, phone tree of, of qualified people that, that landed the right people in, in Thailand to do that rescue. But but the reality is that 99% of the time, it's not going to be a rescue. When somebody's gone underwater in a cave system, there's no place for them to surface except the place that they went in. So if they're overdue, they're not going to find an airspace. Like the kids in the Thai cave rescue are the very small exception. What's the mental process between those like crisis situations? And also you mentioned about, um, I think it's the R7 gene, which I was really intrigued by. Yeah, the 7R genes. So, yeah, there's a genetic makeup of somewhere between 15 and 30% of the population um, called the DRD47R allele. <laughs> and um, the short form is the 7R gene. 
And that's what we call the adventure seekers gene. And it means that you are attuned to novelty and sensation seeking. So if we think about a caveman or (laughs) some ancient man or ancient humanity, there were some people in the family that were the hunter-gatherers that went out into the world and with a bow and arrow shot dinner and brought it home. (laughs) There were others at home that took care of the kids and grew the crops and built a community. So I would have been the hunter-gatherer. That's why I'm always sort of attuned to the novelty and sensation-seeking behaviors. It doesn't mean that you're risky, like it doesn't mean that you do things unsafe, but it means you're attuned to risk um, and probably driven by risk. And uh, so when I recognize that it is a very physiological thing that's driving me and moving forward, it also reminds me that I have to constantly be mitigating those risks because I am always pushing the envelope. It's also really nice that like when you met your second husband, Robert, how a seven R ultimately can acknowledge another seven R and like the relationship that was formed from kind of those early email exchanges to kind of going and building like geo greenhouses and stuff and cycling all over Canada. Like talk to me a little bit about that because that was really nice. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're trying to figure out if you're a seven R, you can ask yourself like, when you, you know, walk to school as a kid, did you always walk the same route, like the same streets? Or did you walk different routes? You know, even when you go and explore a, a, a city today, you know, do you do you have a plan for the day or is it organic and you just go out and experience the world? Um, so, you know, do you like different foods with rich flavors? Do you experiment um, with foods? Like all of that would indicate someone who's a 7R. And so a 7R does really well with another 7R. And sometimes a 7R with with a non-7R doesn't work. Like, like if we were planning a day out and I didn't have a 7R partner, that 7R partner might want to know what time we're leaving, where we're going, uh, where we're going to eat, you know, and, and exactly what time we're going to get home. But with Robert and I, it's just like we jump in the car and maybe even in the car, we change our mind halfway there and go, oh, wow, look, they're having a festival here. Let's go. And so it's just a very organic living. And that would drive a non-7R crazy. (laughs) So researchers actually say that if you've you've got a mixed marriage in in that regard, it's probably not going to last seven years because um, the two spouses aren't going to be able to... uh, you know, enjoy recreational activities <laughs> in a way that satisfies them both. After some of the amazing stuff that you've you've been and done in your past, you kind of subsequently went on to kind of doing work on the movie The Cave over in um, Bucharest and also Water's <laughs> Journey. Can you tell me a little bit more about Water's Journey and, and The Cave and kind of what it was like on those particular projects? Oh, sure. I mean, sometimes I'm doing like documentaries that express very important things that I want to communicate with the world, like the Water's Journey series I did for PBS. But at other times, you kind of need a paycheck and you need to sort of work for someone for a while. And so I'll do television programs. A lot of them are meaningful, but then I'll also do like 
shameless TV, I call it, which might be like reality TV or, or an action movie like The Cave. You know, it's, it's not going to make the world a better place, but it's going to give me a great paycheck for a while and also give me a, a, a chance to do something kind of fun. The, doing the movie The Cave was, was fascinating because I was involved in so many aspects of that of that film. And it meant that I was having to learn a lot of, of new skills and develop new proficiencies, but it was also incredibly dangerous. I mean, we did spend time in Mexico in real caves, but we also built cave sets in Romania. And uh, some of the work on those sets was incredibly dangerous. Um, just dealing with, you know, electricity or, you know, the construction of the sets and things that could go wrong, the safety for doing all the stunts underwater. And, uh, as I look back on the project, I'm sort of, I have more and more fond memories, but at the time it was incredibly uh, stressful keeping everybody safe. And, and like the We Are Water series, like tell mm -hmm. people like the motivations behind that and the passion behind the kind of meaning of that. Yeah, the Water's Journey series and We Are Water, it was all about following a drop of water through the environment and trying to communicate with people how we are connected um, to our water resources. Because when I'm swimming through an underwater cave system, I'm literally swimming through the veins of Mother Earth and I'm I'm in your drinking water. And that drinking water that's you know critical for humanity, wildlife, the environment, and even every industry that we that we enjoy and, and rely on. So communicating about how even things that we do on the surface of the earth affect our drinking water resources. Like it doesn't matter where you live, you will affect the world's water. And um, we are all interconnected through that very precious resource. And, you know, I, I would have thought that through experiencing COVID, people would have gained more of a respect for interconnectivity, but but I don't think we're there yet. Like, like COVID, if I took all the virus and held it in my hands and I could hold all the current COVID virus in my hands, and yet it's affected the entire planet. And we can never deny our interconnections to every corner of the earth. And it's the same with water. Like water flows in and out of our lives and moves around the planet without any regard for international boundaries. And so we have to look at what happens to that water and how we use that water in the same global way that we did when we started to try to tackle COVID. And so many of our issues today rely on a a, a global ethic, really, a global interconnectivity that people all respect in order to solve our issues. Yeah, I do find it a bit crazy that like countries decide to go into siloed entities when actually to solve the world's most pressing problems, we need collaboration and communication and togetherness. So I personally think, you know, in a, the space of a, a couple of years time, I know what's being built at the base. So like, you know, the things that you guys do the other there's an amazing company that i'm working with at the moment called gratitude that are doing some amazing things there's loads of good innovation taking place but i think ultimately it comes down to leadership right the, the leaders that we have at the at this present point in time maybe don't see the long path averse to kind of shortcuts well i mean that's part of the problem isn't it that that our our leaders are elected on short terms, like two years, four years, six years, depending, you know, where you are in the world. So if you go into politics, you're immediately thrust into wanting to get reelected. But that means like delivering short term results. But 
many of the global issues that we face today require a lot more patience. Like we may not be able to see the results of actions for many terms past someone's political term. Like as an example, uh, if I, you know, planted myself in North Florida and I I poured a bunch of uh, oil onto the ground, it would soak into the ground and it would eventually contaminate the drinking water resources. Some of it might happen quickly in a local area, but the long-term impacts may not be seen for 10 or 15 years because the water coming out of a spring, like the water will reside underground for for years, if not like decades, like in Australia, you might not see that water that fell as rain for another hundred years. But if that water that fell as rain took contamination from a train derailment underground, it will reappear in our, you know, springs and wells and, and water resources, but over a long period of time. So we need political leaders who are willing to play the long game and do something that might not make them all look shiny in three or four years, but we need patience. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I don't know if you've ever read a book called Long Path by Ari Wallach, but he kind of coined something ultimately about becoming the ancestors our future descendants need. And I really resonated with that because it's like, I get these short cycles. I understand that, you know, even if you're in business, you've got a quarterly cycle that you go through. But Ultimately, it's it's about planting those seeds for future generations to to feed off. We have an opportunity mm-hmm. ahead of us that like has more of a caring, concerned world view that only comes when we start to cultivate future conscious thinking and behavior. And I think um, it, it's it mm-hmm. is there and it's starting. But I think COVID was the trigger. And whilst we see at the moment, it's almost like an intertidal moment. While you see, you know, the old ways persist for the time being, their their times coming to an end. And this kind of movement that's behind, um, ready to kind of flow in, is yeah, that that's something that I think is going to last because people will shift their view from individualistic mentalities to actually impact and what what is Mm -hmm. it that we're going to drive but talking of impact let's talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with like the robotic ai cave explorers and you know equally what the future holds for you Mm, yeah so back you know 25 years ago or more i worked with dr bill stone on creating on on doing the first three-dimensional accurate map of any subterranean space, dry or wet. And and that mapping device enabled us in the first time in history to know precisely where drinking water was beneath our feet and to be able to, like, with accuracy show, like, the size of these conduits and exactly where they were um, under the earth. And that kind of moved me from that adrenaline junkie to someone who was useful to science, <laughs> I suppose. And um, it was really the first time in my life that I that I realized, ah, this is the path forward. The path forward is collaborating with scientists and becoming the eyes and hands for them in an environment that they can't necessarily get to because they don't spend their life as a, as a diver. And in that way, you know, I've continued to work with Bill um, over the, over the decades and um, that mapping device that he first um, had us driving through the cave um, back in 1997, 98 is now a fully autonomous robotic mapper that doesn't need me anymore. And it can swim through the cave and map the cave. It can go to a deep ocean environment or inside a power plant or wherever it needs to go including to space to um, 
go to Jupiter's moon Europa and map the liquid ocean beneath the frozen surface. And, and so, you know, that's the kind of trajectory that technology can take when, when people, you know, jump in and do something that they perceive as impossible and, and try to find a way to make it possible. So, I can now recognize, you know, seeing the beats in my in my career that 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 I've managed to to help usher in a lot of new technologies and a lot of new ways of of looking at problems and issues and and I hope ultimately that that makes me, you know, the woman that I wish I'd met when I was a 10-year-old girl looking to find someone to look up to. And, and that's as is important to me today is not just to do these things, but to communicate about these things, especially with kids. Definitely. And, you know, meeting like your 10 year old self again, what would you say to that person now? Yeah, I would say there was a lot of pain and anguish with trying to find that sense of self and that sense of self-confidence. And although I still do have these moments of, you know, imposter syndrome, like everybody does, I would say to that young person, you know, be patient, know that you can do anything. And don't listen to the voices in your head or the external voices that tell you you can't, because it's not about you. It's about it's about them. Don't let those saboteurs or your own inner saboteur uh, take over. You know, you can do whatever you want to do that's a lovely way to leave it thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure oh it's been great talking with you thanks Peter thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views you can also find and follow us on Instagram LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.